This is the Nietzsche Podcast. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week, getting into uh, section six of On the Prejudices of Philosophers from Beyond Good and Evil. And I was going to do a brief recap of some of the things that we covered last week, but I think that actually this aphorism will do a great job in a sense of summarizing many of the considerations of the previous week. And so let's just get right into the passage where Nietzsche says, quote, gradually it has become clear to me what every great philosophy so far has been, namely the personal confession of its author and a kind of involuntary and unconscious memoir. Also, that the moral or immoral intentions in every philosophy constituted the real germ of life from which the whole plant had grown. Indeed, if one would explain how the abstrusest metaphysical claims of a philosopher really came about, it is always well and wise to ask first, at what morality does all this, does he, aim? Accordingly, I do not believe that a drive to knowledge is the father of philosophy, but rather that another drive has, here as elsewhere, employed understanding and misunderstanding as a mere instrument. But anyone who considers the basic drives of man to see to what extent they may have been at play just here as inspiring spirits, or demons and kobolds, will find that all of them have done philosophy at some time, and that every single one of them would like only too well to represent just itself as the ultimate purpose of existence and the legitimate master of all the other drives, for every drive wants to be master, and it attempts to philosophize in that spirit. End quote. So the criticism that Nietzsche makes of philosophers that in some sense he brings to the forefront from the very beginning of the preface, supposing truth is a woman. What then? So supposing that the pursuit of truth was something passionate, a drive that is not this dispassionate, detached, or detached uh, will to truth, or as he puts it here, a drive to knowledge, um, that in fact the drive to knowledge is itself an instrument. It's being employed by some other drive. And so this ties in with what he said, that behind logic and its seeming sovereignty of movement, there stand valuations, physiological demands for the preservation of a certain way of life. So something which is instinctual, impulsive, passionate, one or another of our drives, all of them like to do philosophy. He says all of them have done philosophy at one point or another. And so a philosopher's perspective is not just his time and place. It's not just the accidents of um, you know, his birth and the circumstances around him that uh, will shape the nature of his philosophy, right? That's often how I've described the congenital defect of philosophers, as Nietzsche called it in Human All Too Human, uh, that, you know, the philosopher takes what's near and dear to him and represents it as the whole world. What we mean by saying what's near and dear to the philosopher doesn't just mean the sort of what's near to him in the physical sense or in a temporal sense, but what's in his heart, the drives, the impulses, the things that are his actual true goals. He, he says the moral or immoral intentions in every philosophy constituted the real germ from which the entire plant had grown. So the entire plant, you know, uh, that the, the philosophy starts with a seed, which is some drive or another within the philosopher uh, 
that then wants to interpret the world entirely in its own spirit. So in the case of Schopenhauer, to use that example again, Nietzsche's psychologizing of Schopenhauer is that he has this very strong sexual impulse that he feels at war with, and thus he embraces the philosophy of the ascetic, of conquering and tyrannizing over one's own impulses as the moral end towards which all existence ought to aim in Schopenhauer's view. Um, I've also looked at how, I think I've brought this up in another episode about how, you know, Immanuel Kant was very much uh, a hypochondriac and prone to what he called melancholic feelings and very much obsessed with this idea of the will's ability to master one's feelings, um, which he used as a means, you know, this intense focus and concentration of willing away one's anxious or depressive thoughts, right? that Kant is the kind of person who believes in the ability of reason to master the passions because that's what he sort of self-identifies with as this lifelong academic and intellectuals. The ability of the intellect to, um, you know, dominate and ultimately do away with one's anxious or, as he says, melancholic thoughts. And so one could then reinterpret all of Kant's philosophy in light of that. And the fact that he arrives at this categorical imperative of this sovereign use of our reason in order to overcome wayward impulses or something of that nature. Uh, I guess Kant and Schopenhauer end up being rather similar in that regard. But I mean, most philosophers end up coming to some sort of (laughs) understanding of morality that's not too dissimilar to that, going all the way back to Plato. The point being, um, the model that Nietzsche is giving us of the self and more importantly, of thinking, of mentation in this passage, just something that he's been building on up to this point, that what your thinking is, is not like, that this drive to knowledge is something indirect, it's something instrumental. The will to truth, then, is something instrumental, it's something that's being used by a more fundamental drive. And this would be, the logic behind this would be in the same way that you could say that consciousness itself or rational uh, cognitive functioning is something built on top of the physiological embodied existence of organisms. That life arose without knowledge and knowledge was created in order to um, serve life, right? And so the great hubris and the mistake of the philosopher has been in imagining that they have somehow broken out of this just by, as Kant would have it, like being able to will away these physiology or impulses that they could have a drive to knowledge which is sovereign and separate that doesn't spring from the germ, the uh, the seed, the um, you know the starting place of some drive or instinct. That philosophy itself is the tool of a desire. It's the tool of an instinct trying to get what it wants. And that philosophy is the expression of that drive in the realm of the intellect, Um, which therefore, in the hands of various different people, depending on what their goals might be, their moral or immoral ends, we get all these different philosophical constructions of the world. They completely reinterpret and reconstruct the world Uh, in the cognitive realm in order to mirror what is inside of them. And indeed, this is sort of the continental tradition, as I've pointed out with Schopenhauer, that he was going back to the 
pure, rational ego cogito of uh, uh, Descartes, that you start the philosophical journey by looking within and looking for what immediate certainties are within you and then using that in order to come to some certainties about the world at large. And so at this point in the argument uh, that Nietzsche has presented, uh, we should completely reevaluate what was happening there, right? That it wasn't actually Schopenhauer when he's looking deep within him, trying to penetrate deep within his own consciousness to know what it is that is most fundamental within him. Nietzsche looks at that and says, no, you're revealing the world according to Schopenhauer. You're not revealing anything of the world itself. And that that's what we're all doing. And so we'll finish out the passage where Nietzsche says, quote, to be sure among scholars who are really scientific men, things may be different, better if you like. There you may really find something like a drive for knowledge, some small independent clockwork that, once well wound, works on vigorously without any essential participation from all the other drives of the scholar. The real interests of the scholar, therefore, lie usually somewhere else, say in his family, or in making money, or in politics. Indeed, it is almost a matter of total indifference whether his little machine is placed at this or that spot in science, and whether the promising young worker turns himself into a good philologist or an expert on fungi or a chemist. It does not characterize him that becomes that he becomes this or that. In the philosopher, conversely, there is nothing whatever that is impersonal. And above all, his morality bears decided and decisive witness to who he is. That is, in what order of rank the innermost drives of his nature stand in relation to each other. End quote. So there's that term order of rank again. And it's really the last, I guess, couple phrases where Nietzsche provides us with something that is really core to his argument at large as we've been following it, that, um, you know, the philosopher, there's nothing whatever that is impersonal, and his morality bears decided and decisive witness to who he is. So that's that rejection of the separation between what we are and what we do, seeing beings as processes instead of um, something static and essentialized, and looking at in the, the term order of rank again, that Nietzsche thinks this rank ordering of things is something inescapable in life. That there is always, what would you say, in this, in the conflict and clashing between the drives, right, the competition will necessarily set one above the other. So the Heracleitean notion that war is the father of all and strife is justice. That strife, this principle necessarily creates this inequality, this rank ordering of things, and that every person is this bundle of drives, but it's not total anarchy in the same sense that nature, I mean, I guess it is anarchy and that there's no law in the sense of an actual, <laughs> you know, law governing what's happening. But insofar as like we might say in the sense of Heraclitus's logos, there is a law, right? The, the laws of natural selection and survival of the fittest. So, in the same way, um, and that's how you create uh, over time in ecosystems a sort of equilibrium. It's not like harmony, right? Because everything's eating each other to survive. But we're, you know, organisms fill their niche, and um, you know, an, an apex predator comes to the to the top of you know the food chain, so on and so forth. And so, so too with all of us, all of our drives end up ordering themselves into this hierarchy 
and Nietzsche is saying this is what bears witness to who and what we are is the drives the hierarchy of drives insofar as what we actually follow and what manifests in our actions and in the domain of philosophy it's that fundamental drive to that philosopher whatever the top drive is that is going to that's at the top of the order of rank of his innermost nature that produce that's what's really producing his philosophy and this com- these comments about scholars i think are fairly interesting because nietzsche sort of he's heading off at the past the charge like well there are career scholars or scientists who really they just all they care about is getting to the truth right and what he's saying is they if they're doing this sort of disinterested knowledge seeking that means their interests lie elsewhere because we're not disinterested creatures so you know we could imagine somebody who's a tenured professor teaching biology at oxford right but that the average type of person like this is not um you know terribly uh consumed with angst and anticipation over the next uh you know cutting edge discoveries in you know sequencing the genome of the earthworm or whatever that a lot of the work they do is actually rather tedious that these people who don't have like this deep emotional investment in what they're doing usually it's because they're just a career biologist right that's what their career is that's how they make money and it might just be that that's what they're there for or it might be you know we can be more charitable by that uh with our assessment like maybe their real interests lie in their family right so they're not just it's not just that they're greedy but they want to have a good stable career that's respectable and that's their way of taking care of their family or freud might come along and say and that's their way of attaining status and attracting a mate right um or he says it might be in politics like maybe they have their career and then they have other interests elsewhere that get them really excited they have their hobbies or they have their political interests or whatever it might be that the people who are actually really invested in a question can't actually approach it in this way that we've always conceived of the drive to knowledge working uh, for somebody to be truly dis- detached and d- dispassionate about the outcomes of a scientific experiment they would have to not have any stake in that outcome or really care about that outcome in some sense again he is just sort of arguing from definition but i guess he's just working out sort of the kinks of his theory here that there is no disinterested drive to knowledge because somebody could come along and say like well, what about a career scientist and he might say well perhaps they have a disinterested drive uh to knowledge because the real drive that's interested and motivated is for their career right um so the drive to knowledge isn't what's operative there right it's again being used instrumentally as a tool of some other interest next in section 7 i'm going to skip over this one cuz we covered it in the epicurus episode but basically he says um you know how I'll, I'll paraphrase here what nietzsche says he says philosophers can be rather malicious and he means this in sort of a tongue in cheek playful way and he says that epicurus uh had a little sort of a mean joke against the platonists and plato that he called them dionysio kolakis which means literally the flatterers of dionysus but uh it's also a common name for an actor at the time and so he's saying this was a very malicious thing that epicurus uh directed towards plato because and this is nietzsche's allegation i'll just 
I'll quote a little bit. He says, quote, he was peeved by the grandiose manner, the mice and son in which Plato and his disciples were so expert, at which Epicurus was not an expert. He, that little old schoolmaster from Samos, who sat hidden away in his little garden at Athens and wrote 300 books, who knows, perhaps from rage and ambition against Plato, uh, end quote. And so we covered that at least to some extent, but this is him including Epicurus, a philosopher Nietzsche has great respect for, even if he has his disagreements with him, and pointing out how even a philosopher like that, Nietzsche can psychologize about him and say, perhaps there was an immoral aim, that was the germ out of which Epicurus's philosophy grew, that uh, perhaps in his philosophy is all a great revenge against Plato. Platonism at that time is like the, um, it's the hot new thing. It's in the zeitgeist. It's what dominates the philosophical academy. And Epicurus has a completely, when Nietzsche says he was not an expert in the the grand style of Plato, you know, Plato's writing these dialogues that sort of mix all these styles of Greek uh, art and literature uh, of like their part drama, their part comedic, their part philosophical um, they're part folklore, you know, um, he blends all of these styles together and he has these grand transcendental ideas about life. Meanwhile, Epicurus is this guy who <laughs> advocates for the simple life, for the quietest life, for not going and getting involved in politics and political disputes, all of these ways of minimizing your exposure of yourself to meaningless suffering. That's not going to get you anywhere, right? And that's sort of his, um, you know, he's this this garden god, as Nietzsche calls him in this passage. He's the guy who advocates for the hidden life, for the apolitical life, uh, for the life away from mass society or, uh, you know, ambition and striving and all of these things, right? And so... Nietzsche is pointing out, is that his revenge against the philosopher who had achieved the top rank with all of these glittering illusions and this grand style? Uh, and so here's Epicurus advocating for quietism and simplicity. Well, then why do you have to write 300 books in favor of that ideology? Perhaps from rage and ambition against Plato. And so he can even do this This new method of reorienting our understanding of a given philosophy by psychologizing about the philosopher based on what is driving him and then evaluating him from that standpoint, he can even do this with a figure like Epicurus that Nietzsche has great respect for. Uh, section eight, very short section. Nietzsche says, quote, there is a point in every philosophy when the philosopher's conviction appears on the stage or to use the language of an ancient mystery, Adventavit asinus, pulcher et fortissimus, end quote, which means the ass has arrived, beautiful and most brave. So when he says an ancient mystery, he means a mystery play. Um, one of the, the mysteries in ancient Greece that you see, so you had the mystery that they were referring to in the most general possible terms would be something like the great mystery of existence. And so you had these cults that were called mystery cults. They would put on mystery plays, which were dramas, but they were sort of a, a so it was an elaboration on an ancient ritual that was supposed to reveal something to the, the attendance about the, the nature, something about the secret patterns or the nature of reality. 
And so in this drama, this mystery play, we have this phrase, the ass arrived, beautiful and most brave. So it's awfully mock heroic. And what is the metaphor here that Nietzsche is using when you're quoting this, this uh, language from the ancient mystery plays? Well, the metaphor is the point in every philosopher when the philosopher's conviction appears on the stage. And so to be vulgar, <laughs> because Nietzsche is being a bit vulgar here, uh, it's funny because we have a, a, a saying in English, showing your ass. Right, that uh, what the philosopher thinks he's doing is, um, you know, perhaps it's the crescendo of his uh, moral system, right? When he makes it clear what is truly driving his entire philosophy, but really he's just showing his ass. Really, he's uh, Nietzsche saying that in every philosopher's work, you can find, and it, and it is. I'm extrapolating here. I'm interpolating from what Nietzsche actually wrote because it's a very brief, aphoristic section here. But the impression I get is that you can see this in the areas where philosophers are wrong, where they're like obviously wrong in their thinking, or where they have ideas that are just totally counterintuitive. Um, that the the parts when you're reading a philosopher in some idea just strikes you as completely strange or like it's not warranted like they just made a huge logical leap and uh, you're wondering why would they come to that conclusion and oftentimes in my experience that's where y you as the audience are perceiving you're sort of touching the moral or immoral germ out of which their philosophy is growing where it becomes clear that there's just simply some demand that this philosopher has and it's the fact that their logic kind of breaks down for you that sort of snatches away the veil for a moment on the fact that this isn't just a dispassionate, uh, detached truth seeker that you're reading. This is somebody with an agenda like we all have, right? And so, and Nietzsche is pointing out the ways in which oftentimes this may, this may be rather embarrassing to perceive, right? Uh, that we become embarrassed for the philosopher. There's, there's something sort of... Um, it's not, it's not quite shameful, but it's like, uh, a, a farce, farcical about the entire thing, right? Okay. Section nine. This is another passage we've, uh, covered in the past. And so we'll get into it again. Quote, according to nature, you want to live. Oh, you noble Stoics. What deceptive words these are. Imagine a being like nature, wasteful beyond measure, indifferent beyond measure without purposes and consideration, without mercy and justice, fertile and desolate and uncertain at the same time. Imagine indifference itself as power. How could you live according to this indifference? Living, is that not precisely wanting to be other than this nature? Is not living estimating, preferring, being unjust, being limited, wanting to be different? And supposing your imperative live according to nature meant at bottom as much as live according to life, how could you not do that? Why make a principle of what you yourselves are and must be? End quote. Okay, so he starts out, he's addressing the Stoics, but just in this first chunk of the text, this passage is very invaluable to us for understanding how Nietzsche himself thinks about nature. Indifferent beyond measure, indifference itself as power, without purposes and consideration, without mercy and justice, fertile and desolate and uncertain at the same time. 
that's what nature is. So Nietzsche's pointing out that we, we like to wax poetic about the nature of nature. <laughs> we attribute, think of Mother Earth, right? This sort of image. Most people think in images, I think, in when it comes to really abstract ideas. This is why I think Wittgenstein wavered on this between um, how what the process of thinking actually looks like, because at a certain point he thinks it is like we think in pictures, like word pictures. I think that's the case, especially when it comes to the abstract, that we have to encapsulate it in kind of an image to really understand it. And so, uh, because it's just like, how do you imagine just nature? And so the image we have, the popular image of Mother Nature or Mother Earth, is often, um, it, it's... I would say the imagery is often warm. It often looks loving, uh, you know, because there's an agenda behind that picture, right? It's often comes. It's often the environmentalists who want to portray Mother Earth or Mother Nature, and they want us to have a loving, harmonious relationship with nature and the environment, right? So they're going to portray nature that way. They're not going to portray Mother Nature as Kali uh, devouring, like <laughs> with her tongue drooling blood, and uh, you know, trampling on a corpse and with a necklace of heads. But that is more. That's perhaps an aspect of nature as well. I was going to say that's more like what nature is, but I think as Nietzsche points out with this passage, the totality of everything we would consider quote unquote nature is so vast. And as he says, fertile and desolate and uncertain at the same time, right? So in some sense, our thought can't even encapsulate it. But in another very important sense, what we all are is living beings. And it's because he does have this conception of what life is at least, right? And that life is estimating, preferring, being unjust, being limited, wanting to be different. So that's a very important point as well, that nature, what we're describing, is actually not a monism. That's why you can't actually encapsulate it in one image. It's an irreducible multiplicity. Uh, this is how Nietzsche thinks about um you know, the world at large, that rather than the reality being that there are self-identical categories or sets of things, we have this like irreducible individual individuality and separateness and difference and therefore conflict and strife. That's what describes the world is all of these centers of will force at war with one another in so many words. And so what do all these living things do? Well, they're all limited because they're actually not, they're trying to distinguish themselves from the other competing quantas of will force in the system that it is by distinguishing yourself from making a, drawing a distinction between yourself and others that you attain individuality. And so living is wanting to be different. It involves preference, he says being unjust here is an, is an essential quality of living. Well, because all valuations in some sense are unjust because you can't make a rational um, objective argument for what you should value or prefer. Again, the, the most basic level, you can just say, well, this is just my physiological demand. This is just what I need on a physiological level or what I seek on a physiological level. And 
you know, that's it. Even when it comes to the assessment of life itself, whether you say yes or no, you can't logically prove whether or not life is good or life is bad. And so what it means to be a living being is actually not to be part of this uh, harmonious monism where you're absorbed back into the bosom of mother nature. What it means to be a living being is to be something which is different and distinguished from all other living beings and is therefore striving against all of them. That's what we actually see in nature is this endless strife between organisms, the war of all against all. And so to say that you want to live according to nature, Nietzsche is saying, well, how could you not do that? Any way that you live as a living being, any way that you assert yourself, assert your pattern, a way of being against all the others, that is you living according to nature. You might as well say living according to life. How could you not do that? Why make a principle of what you are and must be? You're just adding on to it. But the, the truth is, and this is what he'll get into in the next paragraph, because again, he's addressing the Stoics. The truth is that the people who say things like, I want to live according to nature, have actually made a self-conception of nature, which is, if not monistic, it's one of those simplified images that can encapsulate the totality of nature and therefore focuses on some individual aspect of it, which would be according to what? It would be according to the moral or immoral ends that the person trying to describe nature is focused on. That's what they're going to see in nature. So because truly living according to the indifference of the totality of the whole system of nature, this, you know, um, the war of all, I want to live according to the principles of the war of all against all. Um, that's not something that even really makes sense to some extent. Uh, you would just, you would go mad, right? So uh, the only choice you have is to live according to life. Um, but the Stoics are one of these groups who have a, they're imposing something upon nature. And Nietzsche explains it better in the, the following section. So we'll just continue. Quote, in truth, the matter is altogether different. While you pretend rapturously to read the canon of your law in nature, you want something opposite, you strange actors and self-deceivers. Your pride wants to impose your morality, your ideal on nature, even on nature and incorporate them in her. You demand that she should be nature according to Stoa, and you would like all existence to exist only after your own image, as an immense eternal glorification and generalization of Stoicism. For all your love of truth, you have forced yourselves so long, so persistently, so rigidly, hypnotically to see nature the wrong way, namely stoically, that you are no longer able to see her differently. And some abysmal arrogance finally still inspires you with the insane hope that because you know how to tyrannize yourselves, Stoicism is self-tyranny, nature too lets herself be tyrannized. Is not the Stoic a piece of nature? But this is an ancient eternal story. What formerly happened with the Stoics still happens today too, as soon as any philosophy begins to believe in itself. It always creates the world in its own image. It cannot do otherwise. Philosophy is this tyrannical drive itself, the most spiritual will to power, to the creation of the world, to the causa prima, end quote. Given everything we've discussed, I think 
this is all fairly self-explanatory what he's saying here, but it's interesting just how he he points out that the parallel between Stoicism as this self-tyranny. So, and we discuss this again, there's more information on this in the Epicurus episode because I wanted to contrast the Stoics with Epicureanism because it's not like a ideological disagreement that is terribly... Uh, easy to grasp for a modern person because those schools of thought don't like exist anymore to any real extent but well i guess they do they've just changed forms but they don't you know anyway uh this ancient eternal story right that is the really important thing here the philosopher creates the world in their or he says philosophy creates the world in its own image so the philosopher the inspired mystic right or the artist somebody who has basically being driven by something that is not within his conscious rational control is being used by this tyrannical drive. But philosophy, that's the interesting thing at the end of this section that Nietzsche, it may not sound like he's giving credit to philosophy, may sound very negative by calling it the tyrannical drive, the most spiritual will to power, the creation of the world. But it's fairly fascinating to me because it's almost, he is attributing some sort of power to philosophy and of, of course he would because you know these philosophical recreations of the world um and when he says the causa prima first cause you know that's often used in the cosmological argument for god's existence that god is the uncaused cause the first cause that sets everything into motion and so why do we think that about the world because that mirrors the way that philosophy creates the world within our thought and these recreations of the world that philosophy has produced, um, you know, they permeate the thought of entire cultures and they shift and mutate until they become world religions that then completely redefine how millions of people see the world. And so there is actually a power to philosophy. It's the most spiritual will to power that says a great deal about both the will to power and what Nietzsche thinks is actually going on with philosophy, that it is the most spiritual form, spirit here, you know, Geist, uh, having the connotation of the intellect in German, that uh, philosophy creates our quote-unquote spiritual worlds. And so the Stoics, as these, I, I kind of dropped this point earlier, I, don't, I didn't fully articulate it, the Stoics are these people who self-tyrannize, they uh, believe in mastering their passions. Again, a very common theme among uh, philosophers. And a number of other things as well, but I don't want to go into an, an explication of Stoicism here. Um, they then, <laughs> they say that they're uh, doing this in order to live according to nature, but what they do is recreate the world, or uh, in other words, recreate nature in the image of their ideology in this way that philosophy recreates the world. So it is a criticism of stoicism. And, and oftentimes if you have like, a, you know, a, a Nietzschean is going to debate with a stoic, they, they rush to this passage because it's, you know, it's a really good, well-written passage and you can uh, use it to make all these accusations against stoicism. But, you know, the interesting thing is not the criticism of stoicism in this passage. It's again, it, it has so many layers to it. There's Nietzsche's conception of nature that we have, which is very important, but also the 
putting a very blunt, fine point on it, that philosophy is the creation of the world in one's own image. Okay, section 10. Quote, The eagerness and subtlety, I might even say shrewdness, with which the problem of the real and apparent world is today attacked all over Europe makes one think and wonder, and anyone who hears nothing in the background except a will to truth certainly does not have the best of ears. In rare and isolated cases, it may really be the case that such a will to truth, some extravagant and adventurous courage, a metaphysician's ambition to hold a hopeless position, may participate and ultimately prefer even a handful of certainty to a whole carload of beautiful possibilities. There may actually be puritanical fanatics of conscience who prefer even a certain nothing to an uncertain something to lie down on and die. But this is nihilism and a sign of a despairing, mortally weary soul, however courageous the gestures of such a virtue may look. Uh, end quote. Okay, so the problems of the real and the apparent world. We should all be familiar with this. It's the topic of the first episode of the Nietzsche podcast. It's that old division between the true world and the world of appearances. And he says, the problem is attacked all over Europe. So this idea of the the phenomenological noumena split, this idea that we really know nothing about the quote-unquote objective world as such, for whatever that might even mean, because we all live in our nervous systems, we live inside of our heads, we have no experience of the world outside of our sensations, um, that has dominated European thought, uh, not just for centuries before Nietzsche, with figures like Kant, but even leading up to his own time. And we've talked about how Nietzsche was very interested in the work of uh, scientists and philosophers of science of the neo-Kantian school who were still very much concerned with this question. But he says, even this, so this like desire to bridge the gap between the real and the apparent world or to, to comprehend um, you know, what this division truly means to understand what we can know of the real world from our knowledge of the phenomenal. So all of these questions, he says, anyone who hears just a will to truth in all of this doesn't have the best of ears. And his reasoning for this is that even those, and I I love his phrasing here, and I've used it many times because what he describes is sort of like the, the terminally skeptic position, right? We all know somebody like this, um, somebody who gets into solipsism or one of these ideologies were like, how can we know we know anything, man? You know, it's, it's sort of the, the the types of positions that people take, um, especially when they're very early getting into philosophy. And that, quite frankly, are the things that people make fun of in the popular consciousness when they bring to mind what a philosopher is. You know, the philosopher is the person who doesn't even know that, uh, you know, reality exists and uh, what even is reality, Right. So the the kind of person who's willing to part with all certainty, part with a whole carload of beautiful possibilities, and who might even prefer a certain nothing to an uncertain something. So I think that really perfectly describes what's happening. But Nietzsche's pointing out, or or a, t- or a certain type of person, a certain phase that certain people go through in philosophy. But what Nietzsche's pointing out, that this is not um, actually the product of somebody taking through a dispassionate will to truth, a courageous desire to just hold to nothing but the truth to the very end, right? Nietzsche's saying that's not what's happening here. If somebody's rejecting the entire world as an, 
essentially false and saying, I can't be certain of anything. I'll, I'd rather be certain of nothing than embrace any degree of falsehood and be deceived. That that's just a statement of the person's own nihilism. And you could say that that's just an ad hominem attack, but I don't think you can get around that with an argument because, or with that type of argument of saying, it's, well, it's just an ad hominem attack. Like, uh, you know, you, you actually don't have any true certainty, absolute certainty in the physical world or something like that. I think to make an argument that Nietzsche might advance, yeah, but we all care about things in this physical world that is quote unquote illusory, right? You know, we have friends and family and loved ones and, uh, you know, artistic projects and things that we care about in life. And so if you care about those things, then it becomes real enough to you in some ex to some extent. And then this kind of like metaphysical uh, questioning to the point of questioning the entire world, your entire reality to death, uh, you know, with this like extreme skepticism um, that only that can't actually hold water for you because to the extent that you do care about the things of the world, it makes them real enough to be motivating of your actions. And so this just would become empty metaphysical speculation to the extent that somebody actually denies the existence of the entire world. Somebody like Schopenhauer, right? It's just evidence of the fact that they're actually a nihilistic person. And therefore they're doing philosophy from the perspective of that nihilism. Their despair is what's driving their philosophy. So we'll continue with the passage. Quote, it seems, however, to be otherwise with stronger and livelier thinkers who are still eager for life. When they side against appearance and speak of perspective with a new arrogance, when they rank the credibility of their own bodies about as low as the credibility of the visual evidence that the earth stands still, and thus apparently in good humor let their securest possession go. For in what does one at present believe more firmly than in one's own body? Who knows if they are not trying at bottom to win back something that was formerly an even securer possession, something of the ancient domain of the faith of former times, perhaps the immortal soul, perhaps the old God, in short ideas by which one could live better, that is to say more vigorously and cheerfully than by modern ideas. End quote. So <laughs> this is where things start to get a little bit complex with Nietzsche's thinking. I mean, at times when you break down what he's saying, I begin to feel, especially over repeated exposure to the ideas that I'm like, is this almost just too obvious on the face of it? But then you get to a passage like this where Nietzsche is very much self-aware of the fact that he might appear to be standing against appearance when he speaks of perspective. What does that mean? Well, we covered this a bit in the previous episode that to acknowledge perspective, to acknowledge that your reality that you live in is not the objective reality is in some sense to side, quote unquote, against appearance, because you're saying the appearances which constitute my reality are not necessarily, quote unquote, reality as such, that that old phenomenal noumenal split emerges again just as a consequence of perspectivism. And this is why this is sort of like a philosophical bugbear that's never going to go away. Um, and that, but notice there's sort of Nietzsche, we can tell that he is speaking at least somewhat approvingly of this kind of skepticism 
insofar as he's bringing up, you know, that they're doing this apparently in good humor. There's a sort of exuberance, a sort of, um, you know, what would you say? Like the laughing uh, bravery of the dashing knave, right? As they let their own body go. As they count the evidence of their own body as low as the visible, visual evidence that the earth stands still. I mean, what does that mean? It's simply pointing out one way in which our perspective our perspective on the world is that the earth stands still. It's not that we're on a revolving globe whirling through space. It's only through the accumulation of millennia of scientific knowledge that we could come to that sort of understanding. But that's why for most of human history, we believe that the earth stands still. And that was actually technically wrong, right? But it's wrong in the sense, only in the sense of the objective world. It's not wrong in the sense that this is actually what we experience from our perspective. And that we can't, it's, this is a great way to hammer home that perspective is not like just your arbitrary choices or preferences like that you make on a whim. That you don't have a choice whether you perceive the earth as standing still or not, right? <laughs> that it's, it's, it's not your like intelligent, rational decision to believe that. It's simply your honest perception as you live it. And so Nietzsche is again, would seem to be raising perhaps a problem from his own position by approving of this kind of skepticism of the very project that he's putting forward to understand perspective and see all of our truths as irreducibly human. Uh, you're letting go something, you're letting go of certainties that previously people would have said are our most secure certainties in some sense, like that I, I can believe what I see with my own eyes. Nietzsche in some sense is saying we can't believe what we see with our own eyes. Right. But it's interesting that he says, maybe they're trying to claw back the immortal soul or the old God, these ideas by which one could live better. That is to say more vigorously and cheerfully than by modern ideas. And as I've suggested, I think this is a hint that Nietzsche is giving us that he's not trying to, claw these things back in the sense that perhaps Kant was doing, right? Making reason the governor of all human action in the sense that, you know, the word and the, the logos and God's law, his moral law upon us men as thinking beings set apart from the animal kingdom, you know, maybe we can get that back through a strictly rational philosophy of living by moral and rational laws. Uh, but what Nietzsche is doing is seeing the ways in which ideas like the God of um, Christendom was a motivating thing for mankind, was the receptacle of our valuing. Um, and the immortal soul also had a similar effect. And so perhaps there is a way to find the same motivation or valuing um, to look for something like that by which we could live better, right? Um, but it's very difficult to actually say in this passage why Nietzsche thinks that this one form of skepticism he's describing and that he's following in his pursuit of truth in this book is somehow different from that first kind of accepting a certain uh, nothing in, instead of an uncertain something. And this is one of those answers that may dissatisfy you, but I think Nietzsche would simply say the instincts that are driving the person, right? He's saying, I detect something stronger and livelier in this viewpoint, which is based on perspective, than I do in the sort of like solipsistic, um, you know, 
ultimate skepticism that we all stereotype the first year philosophy student as having that it doesn't necessarily that we shouldn't evaluate them on the level of testing their ideas against one another. We should sort of test their instincts against one another. Um, you can take that or leave it, but that is Nietzsche's approach. So then he says, quote, there is a mistrust of these modern ideas in this attitude, a disbelief in all that has been constructed yesterday and today. There's perhaps some slight admixture of satiety and scorn. Uh, I'm going to skip down a little bit here. In this, it seems to me we should agree with these skeptical anti-realists and knowledge my microscopists of today. Their instinct, which repels them from modern reality, is unrefuted. What do their retrograde bypaths concern us? The main thing about them is not that they wish to go back, but that they wish to get away. A little more strength, flight, courage, and artistic power, and they would want to rise, not return. Uh, end quote. And so, uh, the main point at the end of this passage, like, there's still... The current crop of philosophers, it, they still... They're not quite there yet, and this is why Nietzsche is hoping for philosophers to come in the future to fulfill his aims, that um, many of the people like Nietzsche, who are calling into question the ideas about reality that come on the heels of the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution, many of them end up as you know reactionaries who want to return society to an earlier time. Maybe perhaps they find... Uh, there is no way to claw back the old god in this new world, and so we must simply return to tradition. We've all seen that meme in recent years. And uh, in some way he's saying, look, <laughs> what's admirable about them is not where they want to go, that they want to go back, because such a thing is not possible. It's that they want to get away from modernity, which is, in Nietzsche's view, um, hopelessly dogmatic and in many ways worse than the irrational um, and unquestioned dogmas of past eras. That at least, perhaps with these old religions, um, they recognize themselves as religions, unlike many of the, you know, the attitudes that were arising in Nietzsche's day, which we should all be familiar with by now, of sort of like positivism, scientific realism, and... Uh, you know, all of these more moral ideas of modernity that people just sort of accept as like, well, that's just the truth, right? <laughs> well, that's just the right thing to do. Um, whereas, you know, um, in the past, there was like a self-identity associated with the dogma and a conscious identification with this dogma and an unquestioning nature to it. And anyway, I, I won't get into Nietzsche's general critique of modernity, but in in general, he thinks it's something we have to move beyond. And so he doesn't like that they want to go back, but he does like that they want to get away. And so that's why he's hoping for the philosophers of the future to want to rise and not return. Very important uh, turn of phrase that he uses there for understanding what Nietzsche's aiming at. So uh, section 11, this section... I'm going to skip it, and not because it's not incredibly important, but because I did a deep dive on this section on the episode um, on the congenital defect of philosophers. So I, I know I brought that up that episode up the last time, uh, or in the first episode, but if you want a deep dive on this section, I believe it comes toward the end of the episode. Um, the key thing in this passage is that 
We have that question of synthetic knowledge a priori that Nietzsche makes reference to earlier in the text. So Kant has this idea that um, in order to solve the problems of epistemology, uh, in other words, the question of how we know what we know, you, you could account for human knowledge being certain of what we know with this idea of a synthetic knowledge a priori, which means a priori meaning knowledge that you have prior to any experience. So we're born with this knowledge, and yet it's synthetic. Synthetic meaning you, you bringing together of two things in your mind, right? We don't need to get too deeply into what all of this means. I, I mean, I do dive more deeply into that in the congenital defect of philosophers episode. The reason why this is important is that Kant's question is how are synthetic judgments a priori possible because it's kind of counterintuitive, right? And he comes to the conclusion it's by virtue of a faculty. And when you think about the turn of phrase by virtue of a faculty, uh, as Nietzsche points out, you could say by virtue of a virtue, right? A faculty, uh, you know, that just means some aspect or trait or quality that you have in the same sense, that's what a faculty means, right? And so in some ways, it's just a bald-faced assertion to say by virtue of a faculty. We have some faculty that allows us to make synthetic judgments a priori, which simply is just defining it into existence. You're saying uh, there's just human beings just have the ability to do this, right? And... (laughs) He says then, you know, the honeymoon of German philosophy arrived and everyone went out looking to find faculties and that they didn't do a sufficient job of understanding that they were blurring the lines between finding and inventing. And that in German, finden and irfinden, uh, those two words, finding and inventing, are they, uh, what are they, cognates? So they, they come from the same, like, root word. And so Nietzsche says, again, Uh, it's high time to replace the Kantian question, quote, how are synthetic judgments a priori possible by another question? Why is belief in such judgments necessary? And so what he's bringing to our attention there is this (laughs) defining into existence of a faculty that we have for the sake of being able to know with certainty uh, things of which we have no experience, just, you know, the state of being a blank slate, um, this was necessary to Kant for the moral ends that his philosophy was serving. And that you could say the synthetic, the question of how are synthetic judgments a priori possible by virtue of a faculty? That's the philosopher's conviction arriving on stage, the ass arriving beautiful and most brave. And I think, actually, this is a great example of what Nietzsche means in that kind of enigmatic section eight, is the example of Kant and his synthetic judgments a priori, because he says um, the entire thing reminds him of a scene in Moliere, which is a a play, uh, what is it, quia est in eo virtus dormitiva, cujus est natura senses supere. Um, and what that is, that it's a reply of the doctor to another character who's explaining how this concoction works. 
and he says it puts you to sleep because it contains a sleepy faculty whose nature it is to put the senses to sleep, <laughs> right? So we uh, synthetic judgments a priori are possible because we have a synthetic judgments a priori faculty whose nature it is to allow us to perceive synthetic judgments a priori. There, it's solved, right? Um, and Nietzsche is pointing out that belong that's comedic, it's farcical, right? And so that's the farcical nature of the philosopher's conviction arriving on the stage. So skipping over any reading from that passage is because you can get it in another episode in more detail. Next, we have section 12, which we touched on in the episode uh, on Nietzschean science. Uh, quote, as for materialistic atomism, it is one of the best refuted theories there are. And in Europe, perhaps no one in the learned world is now so unscholarly as to attach serious significance to it except for convenient household use as abbreviation of the means of expression. Thanks chiefly to the Dalmatian, Boscovich. He and the Pole, Copernicus, have been the greatest and most successful opponents of visual evidence so far. For while Copernicus has persuaded us to believe, contrary to all the senses, that the earth does not stand fast, Boscovich has taught us to abjure the belief in the last part of the earth that stood fast, the belief in substance, in matter, in the earth residuum and particle atom. It is the greatest triumph over the senses that has been gained on earth so far. End quote. So, again, when Nietzsche is talking about a triumph over the senses, He's talking about this triumph of his new approach of perspective, of extrapolating what one's senses are and the, the apparent world, the world of appearance, into this universal dogmatism, right? What he defined as dogmatism in the first section. That's what uh, gaining a triumph over the senses means here. So again... It may seem confusing because you might be like, what? Isn't Nietzsche all for the world of the senses? Yes, but with the realization that our senses are not providing us with the universally applicable truths of an objective world. It's very subtle what Nietzsche's project is, right? When, when we get into the details as he sort of lays them out here and Beyond Good and Evil. Now, so we talked a lot about Boscovich in that episode and Copernicus, but his explanation of Copernicus, I think, is very explanatory, especially given the fact that he drew on the idea that the Earth does not stand still in previous um, previous section, because obviously Copernicus is the one who tells us that the sun, uh, the Earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around. But Boscovich is this physicist who. Um, uh, and uh, philosopher of science who comes up with this single mathematical equation for des describing how all forces in the physical world operate. And it's based on this idea of action at a distance, which, you know, we won't get into here, but in a sense, what Boscovich's theory allows us to do is to see things like particles or atoms as rather than being, because in Boscovich, um, Atoms are non-corpuscular and they're non-extended, if I remember correctly. So in so many words, I'm just going to try and skip over several steps of this argument. Um, if you really accept like Boscovichian physics, which Nietzsche seems to do in this passage and especially in his notes, particles aren't a substance. They're not actually like the substrate of reality. 
when we break down, it's a very bizarre belief when you think about it, like, oh, we keep breaking down matter into smaller and smaller parts, and the smaller the parts, the more fundamental they are. Well, why does that follow? That doesn't follow at all. In fact, it's the type of thinking that you would only apply if you were thinking that the universe was like built from more basic building blocks. That's often how we talk about matter, right? It's like we have smaller and smaller building blocks, right? Like we were put together like Legos or whatever. Um, but if you consider that reality, if you consider reality not as something that was intelligently designed or consciously directed or it has some sort of teleology for it, it's actually a very bizarre idea to think that the smaller units of matter somehow get you closer to understanding the basics of reality, right? That what if that is not the relevant scale of matter to consider to really understand matter? And so what Nietzsche is really attacking here is this idea to believe in, because like going all the way back to Democritus, there's this idea of the atom of the smallest possible, possible particle of matter that is indivisible. You can't get anything smaller, right? And so that would then offer you something like substance, I suppose, is why people look for smaller and smaller particles. Because once you hit bedrock and you're like, this is the smallest thing, then you can say that is what everything is. And you can say that is the substance because it's indivisible. That gives you a thing that can't be divided into other things, right? And so if you were to find something that is truly indivisible, that really is what Nietzsche is criticizing when he's criticizing atomism. He's not criticizing the idea that we, you know, you, people read this passage today and they're like, well, Nietzsche was wrong because we can look at an electron microscope and see atoms. It's like, that is not an atom the way Democritus, Democritus spoke of an atom because an atom's indivisible. And atoms as we know them, they initially may have thought they found something like what Democritus was talking about, but you can divide them into protons, neutrons, and electrons. And then you can find quarks beneath that and Planck particles and all of these things. We have never hit the bedrock of finding what is the indivisible substance, substrate, which all matter is built out of. The reason it would be very important for it to be indivisible is because that would, that would be something that stands still or, or stands fast. That would be something essential, right? It would be something that is... Um, self-identical, enduring, uh, it, all of these things that Nietzsche basically says don't actually exist in nature in the phenomenal world, that only exist as, as conceptions, basically. It's sort of the, the hunt to actually find that in physical nature. That's what science is doing with their, what he calls in the following paragraph, an atomistic need, right? To find the thing that's indivisible to then prove that matter is something solid. It's something enduring, something we can comprehend in the language of, you know, rational, conscious, philosophical thought, which partakes of the unconditioned and self-identical. But what we see in nature is that we don't have anything that's unconditioned and self-identical. The reason is because nothing is divisible from the environment around it. You're not divisible from the air you breathe, right? You take the organism out of the air, it breathes and it dies. So that means that the living organism, at least, can't be separated from the entire atmosphere and all of the processes and things that go into that and on and on and on through the entire natural physical world. So that's really what he's criticizing. And so to continue with this passage, quote, 
One must, however, go still further and also declare war, relentless war unto death against the atomistic need, which still leads a dangerous afterlife in places where no one suspects it, just like the more celebrated metaphysical need. One must also, first of all, give the finishing stroke to that other and more calamitous atomism, which Christianity has taught best and longest, the soul atomism. Let it be permitted to designate by this expression the belief which regards the soul as something indestructible, eternal, indivisible, as a monad, as an atomon. This belief ought to be expelled from science. Uh, end quote. So there you go. He, he comes right out and says it. Really, the nature of atomism isn't like trying to just like explain reality by breaking things into smaller parts. That's not what he's criticizing. He's criticizing the search for something in nature which is indestructible, eternal, indivisible as a monad. And what he says is, so that's why this atomistic need is very similar to a metaphysical need because they're looking for the same, they're looking for in the natural world through the pursuit of science, something which they used to have in metaphysics. And furthermore, the soul atomism, as Nietzsche is describing it, isn't like breaking the soul into smaller particles. It's seeing the soul itself as an atom, an atomon, something indivisible. So the self, one's identity as an atom, whereas Nietzsche doesn't think that that's what we are at all. Again, we are these, these rank-ordered bundles of drives and um, that are not, it's not something stable and static and self-identical that actually what we contain within the concept of the self, or not the concept, but what is actually contained within our self-identity, regardless of how we conceptualize about it, includes things that are mutually exclusive. And that oftentimes what the self consists of and what we are shifts and changes. It becomes rather than simply is. So back to the passage, quote, um, between ourselves, it is not at all necessary to get rid of the soul at the same time and thus renounce one of the most ancient and venerable hypotheses, as happens frequently to clumsy naturalists who can hardly touch on the soul without immediately losing it. But the way is open for new versions and refinements of the soul hypothesis and such conceptions as mortal soul and soul as subjective multiplicity and soul as social structure of the drives and affects want henceforth to have citizens' rights in science." End quote. So that's exactly what <laughs> I was just bringing up. All of those ideas are different pictures of the self-identity, which are not essentialist and static based on this view of being rather than becoming. Uh, we'll finish the passage, quote, when the new psychologist puts an end to the superstitions, which have so far flourished with almost tropical luxuriance around the idea of the soul, he practically exiles himself into a new desert, and new suspicion. It is possible that the older psychologist had a merrier and more comfortable time of it. Eventually, however, he finds that precisely thereby he also condemns, condemns himself to invention, and who knows, perhaps, to discovery. End quote. So I just wanted to go to the end of that line because it's a callback to what he was saying about Kant, how everyone was then looking for new faculties, right? And confusing the fact they weren't discovering new faculties, they were inventing them in the same way that Kant had to invent his faculty um, because it was necessary to him in the way that he had recreated the world. So what's interesting is that Nietzsche is saying we're condemning ourselves to become inventors of these new concepts out of need, out of our own necessity, because we are going to be forced into it by the fact that 
Um, our new conception of the world is so strange and so anathema to everything that's come before because the way that people think is still caught in these moral and metaphysical dogmas, often in ways they're not even aware of. We'll have to become the inventors ourselves. But he says perhaps we'll even begin to make actual discoveries, which again, it's worth bringing up that Nietzsche is himself a philosopher here. And it's not as if he thinks it's, he's not an irrationalist in the sense that he doesn't think that there's any uh, truths that you could discover from philosophy. You could actually discover about human nature or the world. It's simply that, what do we mean when we say those, those are truths? What, <laughs> and what, what did we do to pursue those truths? The way we think about those truths. It's completely redefined in light of everything he's uh, laid out. 13, quote, Physiologists should think before putting down the instinct of self-preservation as the cardinal instinct of an organic being. A living thing seeks above all to discharge its strength. Life itself is will to power. Self-preservation is only one of the indirect and most frequent results. In short, here as everywhere else, let us beware of superfluous teleological principles, one of which is the instinct of self-preservation. We owe it to Spinoza's inconsistency. Thus, method, which must be essentially economy of principles, demands it. End quote. So, Spinoza, he says his inconsistency. So, Spinoza is Nietzsche's great precursor. There's much that's uh, valuable about Spinoza. Um, Kaufman points out Spinoza's critique of teleology. What he's referring to here is Spinoza's belief that um, from which Schopenhauer gets his idea of will to live, his idea of conatus, which is the will of living beings to exist, we might say. And something like this principle has permeated philosophical thought going all the way back to the Greeks because, and what Nietzsche would say is that what they're doing is they're trying to, in the same way that Kant says by virtue of a faculty, like how do you say that individual phenomena quote unquote exist when they're not indivisible, right? When, you know, when you see an organism walking around in the forest and it seems to be this, you know, separate distinct thing and then it dies and then what happens? It gets absorbed again by the environment around it. It becomes indistinguishable from the soil and the maggots that eat it and so on and so forth. Or, you know, um, the way in which you could say, <laughs> you could look at the phenomenon of a single roach in your house and say, well, that's just, you know, one roach. That's just one distinct organism. But it would be a really foolish way to think about it. Any rational person, if they see a roach in their house, knows that where there's one, there's going to be more because they like to come in and breed, right? So organisms, living things, they give rise to something beyond themselves. They don't just seek to preserve themselves. That's not the essential character of life. And so that covers sort of the beginning of the passage. Self-preservation is just a frequent result of the fact that what the living organism is trying to do is discharge its strength. So that could involve giving rise to offspring beyond itself, but also to, you know, Nietzsche would of course bring up like predation and the predator's desire to, you know, to the, the predatory need to nourish oneself on lesser life forms is another um, 
version of this. This is where elsewhere he says that uh, reproduction, and uh, I think it's elsewhere in this text, we're going to get to it in the later section, where he says reproduction and nourishment are the same problem in biology, right? And so he sees reproduction and nourishment as sort of more, uh, two sides of the same coin, more indicative of the will to power, which he uses explicitly to say life itself is will to power uh, in this passage. Um, that self-preservation, he makes it a secondary phenomenon here. It's actually, in many ways, runs contrary to what uh, the will to power might be or what it might demand of an organism. I mean, examples we might have, like salmon swimming up rivers so that they can spawn and completely destroying their bodies in the process. They spawn and then they die. Um, so that's a vision of life as essentially trying to give rise to something beyond itself rather than preserve itself as it is. And it was Spinoza's inconsistency, in spite of his brilliance, of asserting this principle whereby things could just be and exist. Everything just has a will to exist and continue existing. That's how there are things. But really, that is simply a <laughs> an unwillingness to see the reality of becoming. That that is the actual character of life and existence, not static being. Nietzsche, in section 14, writes, quote, It is perhaps just dawning on five or six minds that physics, too, is only an interpretation, an exegesis of the world, to suit us, if I may say so, and not a world explanation. But insofar as it is based on the belief in the senses, it is regarded as more, and for a long time must be, must be regarded as more, namely as an explanation. Eyes and fingers speak in its favor. Visual evidence and palpableness do too. This strikes an age with fundamentally plebeian tastes as fascinating, persuasive, and convincing. After all, it follows instinctively the canon of truth of eternally popular sensualism. What is clear? What is explained? Only what can be seen and felt. Every problem has to be pursued to that point. Conversely, the charm of the platonic way of thinking, which was a noble way of thinking, consisted precisely in resistance to obvious sense evidence. Perhaps among men who enjoyed even stronger and more demanding senses than our contemporaries, but who knew how to find a higher triumph and remaining masters of their senses. And this by means of pale, cold, gray concept nets, which they threw over the motley whirl of the senses, the mob of the senses, as Plato said. And this overcoming of the world, an interpreting of the world in the manner of Plato, there was an enjoyment different from that which the physicists of today offer us. And also the Darwinists and anti-teleologists among the workers in uh, physiology with their principle of the smallest possible force and the greatest possible stupidity. Where man cannot find anything to see or to grasp, he has no further business. That is certainly an imperative different from the platonic one, but it may be the right imperative for a tough, industrious race of machinists and bridge builders of the future who have nothing but rough work to do. End quote. So what's particularly interesting about this passage is the way in which Plato has been called out in the very preface as one of the main targets of this work, right? Because he's a dogmatist. He's a, a man who introduced universal dogmatal, dogmatic philosophy into the Western mind in some sense. And he's responsible for so many of these metaphysical errors that Nietzsche thinks have really led us astray. But in the same way that he doesn't think we should be ungrateful to those errors, he can also give a fairly 
charitable assessment of Plato here. And he points out how the mob of the senses, as Plato says, right? Remember the tripartite view of the self from Plato's Republic, that the drives or desires are sort of seen like this, like, uh, this tangle of beasts that reason has to master over and, uh, you know, marshal one's courage and one's, uh, you know, sort of inner spirit in order to, um, you know, bring that into line in a way that mirrors the sort of class classes of society that Plato wants to bring about the three classes of society where you have the philosopher ruler and then the soldiers beneath him enforcing the dictates of reason. And then this is upon the mass of people, the mob, right? Nietzsche correctly points out this is a noble way of thinking. So Plato is an aristocratic elitist, just like Nietzsche, and his philosophy mirrors that. And what he's pointing out is the way in which it's very fascinating because he's still psychologizing in the same way that he's done throughout this passage, showing the ways in which Plato's philosophy, his entire recreation of the world springs from this desire Potentially, we might say one of the things that it springs from to overcome the world, the physical world, the world of appearance, recognizing that the world of appearances of the sense organs, the world of the senses is the world of de desires, earthly desires, drives, wants, those things that philosophers are always trying to master, right? And so accordingly, associating yourself with the otherworldly or the transcendent, that which transcends this world, inventing this world of the forms, which, and he's sort of like marveling at the courage of Plato, the ingenuity of Plato, with this pale, cold, gray concept net, right? This is a time when philosophy is a new, strange thing, and where our ability for complex philo philosophical system building was not very well developed. And so Plato takes this uh, this philosophical system, not, nevertheless, and sets it against, again, like the truth we can see with our very eyes. What, what daring, right, to be able to deny the world that we see with our very eyes as an expression of one believing in the nobility of the intellect and the fact that the this world of the intellect in the abstract should be elevated above this paltry, vulgar, you know, uh, turmoil of delusion and lust that this world is, right? That there is something uh, essentially aristocratic about Plato's view. And again, for Nietzsche, not a strike against Plato. And in a way, he's comparing the viewpoint, we might say that just the, the common sense view of the average person that what can be seen and felt is the only thing worth explaining, right? He's pointing out how uh, this is completely opposite to what he calls the, the sort of the charm for him of Platonic thinking. And it's part and parcel with something, you know, you might call it like vulgar, just sort of the, uh, there is something very commonplace and very mean about it. Um, and that this is what's driving all of physics. But the the important thing at the beginning of the passage is that he says it's just dawning on five or six minds in physics. It's sort of a famously enigmatic line, and, and uh, I, I won't go into like theories about like who he's talking about because, you know, I mean, in some sense it doesn't matter. 
uh, it's just another one of Nietzsche's predictions that, uh, you know, his, these truths that he's grasping at here are going to come into the zeitgeist with fuller force in the, at some future time. But that uh, the understanding that physics itself, the mathematical uh, models and the structures that we create through mentation for explaining how the physical world works are not <laughs> themselves, what would you say? He says it's only an interpretation and exegesis of the world and not a world explanation. Again, it comes back to this fundamental issue of perspective and the awareness that the world of the senses in which we live is not this objective world and that we're not coming any closer to universal truths uh, by grasping at the world through the sciences. We're just coming through a more f to a more sophisticated model of the world as appearance. Now, Nietzsche affirms the world as appearance, right? Totally. But he is trying to walk this tightrope of reminding us that what we do live in is the world as appearance, which means it's a world of perspective, right? Which is has all these sort of terrifying possibilities to it. Uh, without denying that world then on that account and grasping for this objective universal truth, because again, that's something in some sense, it's beyond our capacities as the human it's misunderstanding what truth is, um, what truth is for us, right? Which is as living beings indelibly perspectival. Um, so sort of a reiteration of the same point, but the comments about Plato, I think, are particularly interesting because he, he almost sees what Plato's doing as like laudable from one perspective. It's Plato as artist, right? Plato and Socrates, um, famously anti-artistic philosophers uh, who challenge all the superstitions and dogmas as doing something artistic and creating a new illusion, right? This whole world of the forms is their artistic illusory creation. And that was all completely wrong, but that's not that's not what the fact that it was wrong, the falseness of a judgment is not a argument against that judgment. Um, so, but nevertheless, Plato is not doing, it's not that he arrived at the world of the forms through dispassionate reason. That's the other big issue, right? 15 quote, to study physiology with a clear conscience, one must insist that the sense organs are not phenomena in the sense of idealistic philosophy. As such, they could not be causes. Sensualism, therefore, at least as a regulative hypothesis, if not as a heuristic principle. What, and others even say that the external world is the work of our organs, but then our body as a part of this external world would be the work of our organs, but then our organs themselves would be the work of our organs. It seems to me that this is a complete reductio ad absurdum, assuming that the concept of a causa sui is something fundamentally absurd. Consequently, the external world is not the work of our organs. And it's worth pointing out, he ends this passage with a question mark. Sorry, end quote. So <laughs> the causa sui, cause unto itself, he's saying, assuming that that is something that's fundamentally absurd. So the way that Nietzsche approaches this is very interesting. It's almost like he's not willing to take these logical laws for granted himself. There's like a wink and a smile here. He's like, you and I both know these are just conventions of our thinking, which would follow from the things that he's pointed out. So then he's using the, 
conventions of our thinking, the laws of logic, as we think they are unimpeachable, unchallengeable, saying, well, okay, according to the things that we claim to believe in, we can't have like a reduction to absurdity in our arguments that an uncaused cause, a self-caused cause is something fundamentally absurd. It's like Baron Munchausen pulling himself up by his bootstraps, right? Something impossible that you can't do. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's sort of what the self-caused cause is. Well, that's fundamentally absurd. And if that's the case, you know, if, if you're one of these people who's completely skeptical and completely doubts everything in the world, you would be forced to say that the idea that the organ, that your sense organs are the work of your sense organs, that statement eats itself. So that's why he says to study physiology with a clear conscience, we have to insist that the sense organs are not phenomena in the sense of idealistic philosophy. As such, they could not be causes. So (laughs) idealistic philosophy is to say, to basically say that phenomena are not quote unquote real. I mean, idealism in the strict sense and the strong sense, the Berkeleyan sense is to say that everything truly, everything that's truly real is an idea or in the sense that Plato thought of like the forms that this is the only real world and the phenomenal is at best a sort of deception, right? It might appear real, but it's, it doesn't actually correspond to anything real. Um, he's saying that our sense organs themselves, not the product, not our, what would you say? Not the sensory data, not the things that we're perceiving, but the thing by which you perceive. So, your faculty of hearing, your faculty of sight, these things themselves can't be illusions. All of the sensory data that you're receiving could be potentially illusory. But that point of contact of you, whatever you are, with the broader world, this this faculty, whether it's a physical organ or not, right? That can't be illusory. That is something real. And so... A lot of this may seem fairly straightforward. I get tired of saying this, but something very fascinating in what Nietzsche is doing here, because like, as we talked about in the Schopenhauer episode, so Schopenhauer goes back to the will. That's the thing he sees as fundamental. Or you might, you could imagine the intellect or your consciousness, like Descartes, I think, therefore I am. That's the starting point, right? What's Nietzsche doing here? He's sort of taking us to a place where the sense organs are the starting point. The, the sense organs themselves can't be the work of our organs. So, because that idea eats itself. He still has a question mark at the end because he doesn't want to raise this, he doesn't want to raise an assertion about the objective world because that would be dogmatic. Because ultimately we don't really know. If we take, if we take this strict, hard-boiled, skepticist view, why? Because it would be a reduction to absurdity. And that's why there's still a question mark at the end, because it's like, I'm just following the conventions of logic, which these are not by any means assured. These are just conventions. Um, You know, in some sense, his entire premise is based on challenging, for example, the law of non-contradiction, that something can't be itself and not itself at the same place at the same time. He would say all things are both themselves and not themselves at the same place at the same time. So he's already thrown out uh, the entire law of non-contradiction by his whole project of going beyond good and evil and showing the mutual, (laughs) not 
uh, exclusivity, but inclusivity of opposites, which completely detonates like our whole logical systems. So that's not like a certainty that he's coming to, I guess, is the meaning of that question mark at the end of this. But he's taking us through on our own logic and saying, basically, that if you want to follow that logic and try and gain some sort of quote-unquote objective certainty about the world, it's not permissible to say that there our sense organs are themselves an illusion because that wouldn't make any sense. And therefore, he looks at sensation. I would say this is my extrapolation of this passage based on the rest of what I've read of Nietzsche. My interpolation here is that he's making sensation the starting point in the way that Descartes makes the intellect the starting point or Schopenhauer makes will the starting point. And that's why physiology instinct, impulse, all of these things are primary for Nietzsche. And then the intellect or, you know, the outward manifestation of our desires and in the form of our individual will or whatever it might be, these are all secondary to the initial, the fundamental truth of physiology. And so for whatever the physical world might be, we are embodied beings within that physical world. Meaning we are actually, it's that uh, commitment to multiplicity and difference in Nietzsche, right? That we're all living beings that are distinct and strive to be different. That that's what life is. And thus to be embodied, that's sort of like uh, without drawing on materialistic atomism, right? And the, the notion that we have to be indivisible, truly indivisible in some sort of sense of being, Instead, in the sense of becoming, right, we are first and foremost bodies. We're sensing beings, we might say, because in some sense, that's what it means to be embodied, is to experience oneself as this locus of feelings, not thoughts or, you know, will to live, which he's rejected in one of the previous sections. So in the following section in 16, I think this lends credence to my argument that <laughs> this is exactly what Nietzsche is doing in the previous um, section is sort of setting us up or subtly implying the primacy of sensation or feeling because he immediately then calls to mind these other experiments in doing this very thing, uh, which were Schopenhauer and Descartes. And what is contained in this passage is perhaps the best interrogation of I think therefore I am that exists. And so even though I talked about this in the Descartes episode, uh, I'll just read this whole section again. Quote, there are still harmless self-observers who believe that there are immediate certainties. For example, I think, or as the superstition of Schopenhauer put it, I will, as though knowledge here got hold of its object purely and nakedly as the thing in itself, without any falsification on the part of either the subject or the object. But that immediate certainty, as well as absolute knowledge and the thing in itself, involve a contradicto ad objecto. I shall repeat a hundred times, we really ought to free ourselves from the seduction of words. Let the people suppose that knowledge means knowing things entirely. The philosopher must say to himself, when I analyze the process that is expressed in the sentence, I think, I find a whole series of daring assertions that would be difficult, perhaps impossible to prove. For example, that it is I who think, that there must 
necessarily be something that thinks. That thinking is an activity and operation on the part of a being who is thought of as a cause. That there is an ego. And finally, that it is already determined what is to be designated by thinking. That I know what thinking is. For if I had not already already decided within myself what it is, by what standard could I determine whether that which is just happening is not perhaps willing or feeling? In short, the assertion I think assumes that I compare my state at the present moment with other states of myself which I know, in order to determine what it is. On account of this retrospective connection with further knowledge, it has at any rate no immediate certainty for me. In place of the immediate certainty, in which the people may believe in the case at hand, the philosopher thus finds a series of metaphysical questions presented to him, truly searching questions of the intellect, to wit, from where do I get the concept of thinking? Why do I believe in cause and effect? What gives me the right to speak of an ego, and even of an ego as cause, and finally of an ego as the cause of thought? Whoever ventures to answer these metaphysical questions at once by an appeal to a sort of intuitive perception, like the person who says, I think, and know that this at least is true, actual, and certain, will encounter a smile and two question marks from a philosopher nowadays. Sir, the philosopher will perhaps give him to understand. It is improbable that you are not mistaken, but why insist on the truth? End quote. So, uh, wonderful things in this passage. Um, <laughs> At the beginning, when you think you have an immediate certainty, uh, so he, he links together the, the idea of immediate certainty with absolute knowledge and the thing in itself. He says these are all concepts which can be reduced to the absurd for all the reasons that we've talked about, that in fact, this is an attempt to get back to a truth that is dropped from the lap of being. He says, the idea as though knowledge got hold of its object purely and nakedly as the thing in itself, without any falsification on part of either the subject or the object. So he's just simply saying that is absurd in and of itself for all the reasons that we've talked about, that we're not disinterested truth seekers. So we never get a hold of it. And the idea of Schopenhauer peering within himself and determining that the will was the most fundamental thing and then extrapolating that to be the fundamental inner character of all reality, that's not an immediate certainty of Schopenhauer's, right? And in the place of an immediate certainty, Nietzsche says we should have all these questions instead. And that, as he says at the end of the passage, the fact that you find that simply intuitively to be true, he's saying you, you can't trust your intuition, right? Your intuition tells you that the earth stands still. That doesn't, that can tell you, you can maybe trust your intuition insofar as, what would you say, for living, right? That's what it's for, but it's not, your intuition isn't giving, isn't there to give you knowledge about the quote-unquote objective world, the world that's beyond your senses or beyond human intellect, right? We can't follow our intuition there. And so, Anyone who would put forward, for example, Descartes' cogito ego sum, or sorry, cogito uh, ergo sum, uh, that this is not even, even this, you know, the idea that it's so basic, well, I think, therefore, I must exist as a thinking being. I mean, some of the things you could, that Nietzsche raises here, you could just say are like, just playing devil's advocate. But in a very real sense, I think he's being serious when he says, you don't know that <laughs> it is I who thinks. And that 
the fact that there is something that thinking is happening means that there must be a thing that does the thinking. Because again, this is why we're freeing ourselves from the tyranny of words here. The you're separating the doer and the deed, whereas Nietzsche would just simply say, there's just a process playing out. You don't ever have to like posit this existence of substance because what Descartes cogito ergo sum ends up producing is a soul atomism, right? The idea, well, I have my consciousness and that's my, that's the indivisible atomon of my existence. This is the soul that I have. Um, and if anything, in so many words, the broad thrust of this passage, I mean, he makes a rather brilliant argument that <laughs> you would have to be, you would have to compare a state where you weren't thinking to a state in which you were thinking, which is fairly impossible. I would say it's fairly obvious that it's impossible to do. Like you could say like, well, I've had places in my life where I was out of my mind, events in my life, like where I was like, you know, um, blackout drunk or something like that. But that's the thing about being blackout drunk. You black out. You're not actually there for the events happening, right? When you get blackout drunk, what happens is you're not forming... I, I believe this is right. It might be wrong, but you're not able to form new memories. Essentially, you're you've drank to the point where that ability is disrupted. So you're just having. That's why when you get really drunk and you're still like somewhat conscious, if you ever talk to somebody who's in that state of inebriation, they'll sometimes repeat themselves or ask you the same thing over and over again, because they're actually unable to form new. Uh, their their ability to form new memories is being inhibited in that moment. And so even if they don't like completely black out that experience, um, they're not going to be able to remember in the moment exactly what is happening or what they just said or what they just did. But <laughs> the funny thing about that is, so I've been that inebriated and I can still, I have like a, the vague memory. I mean, not really anything specific at this point, because that would, would have been years and years ago when I would, <laughs> you know, I don't really do that kind of thing now. But the fact that you have any memory of it at all, right? What what we would really need to compare un, a state of unthinking to would be the actual memories that we don't have, if that makes sense. Like the, you'd have to compare it to a state of true unconsciousness. To really compare consciousness to something else, you would have to have the experience of not having any sort of conscious thought at all, which is sort of impossible. It's, I mean, it's not impossible because we'll all experience that when we die, right? Or when we go to sleep before, at least before the state when we're dreaming and rapid eye movement sleep. But point being, you don't, you don't have any experience from the time when you're unconscious, right? When you lose consciousness to the point where you regain it again. So how are you going to compare your thinking to your unthinking state? Even the state of being blackout drunk is not truly a state of being unthinking or unconscious or what, what have you, right? Only unconsciousness is being unconscious. And so uh, how can we truly define what thinking is if we don't know what it isn't? If, we, if our mentation is completely inseparable from the world as we experience it, right? We don't live in a cold, dead, unthinking, unwilling, uh, dead world, right? We, or unconscious world rather. We live in the conscious experience of existence in which, you know, thoughts you could say permeate throughout our, our experience of reality constantly. And 
being able to distinguish that from feeling or thinking is not actually an obvious or easy thing to do. So Nietzsche even questions this immediate certainty of, I think, right? The famous cogito ergo sum of Descartes is uh, thrown into question here. And you would be surprised how many people out there um, will still take this as a sort of immediate certainty. But at the end of this section, Nietzsche, I think, brings us back, grounds us again in comprehending this critique of Descartes in light of his broader philosophical project. Because he says, you know, like, let the people for their part think that philosophy consists of knowing things entirely. So knowing the absolute universal truth, the truth, the, the idea of the truth of the average person is that of the dogmatist. And of course it would be. He, so he says at the end, you know, um, uh, the person who says, I think and know that this, this at least is true, actual and certain. So I know at least one thing is true, actual and certain. And that's that I think, right. This, I, this, very deep desire to cling to to find some sort of universal or dogmatic certainty that we can hold on to just like the way that we search for some sort of atomon in the physical world something indivisible that we can latch onto and therefore say that there is substance something that is that does partake of being about the world that is not just simply simply this slippery becoming that we can't really grab hold of with our world of abstract thoughts, this world that does partake of being, right? That's where being exists is in the consciousness and the conscious thought. And so at least this, that I think that is true and certain, right? Even Nietzsche, when he was sort of bringing us back to the basic uh, truth of our sense organs, ends that uh, section with a question mark, right? That even that is sort of like he's trying to bring us over to his way of thinking and to raise the questions ourselves, um, not necessarily to install that as a dogmatic truth. So he even ends that with a question mark. It's not even really a certainty that our sensation is quote unquote true, because what do we mean by that exactly? Um, but so he says, you know, if you encounter a person who says, I, I think and know that this at least is true, actual, and certain. The, the, the new philosopher, the true philosopher, give him a smile and two question marks. Sir, it is improbable that you are not mistaken. So read, it is probable that you are mistaken. But why insist on the truth? And notice that's only one question. So what's the second question, right? So the first question is, why insist on the truth? And that sheds light on what Nietzsche is doing with bringing things back to sensation or when he posits will to power as being the essence of life, as he did in an earlier section that we looked at today, that Nietzsche is not insisting on the truth in the sense of the old dogmatists, which has, I mean, you could look at it as, it as dangerous implications to it, but in some sense, that's Nietzsche's method of searing through <laughs> these endless metaphysical circles, this whirlpool that will drag you down to solipsism, right? Uh, to find a, you know, to hit bottom and find that all you have is a certain nothing to lay down on and die, right? That uh, Nietzsche is willing to take that whole carload of beautiful possibilities. He's willing to live in the uncertainty and say, I'm going to 
discover truths that are mine that will help me to live, right? And so why insist on the truth is sort of asking why, in some sense, why do you need the fact that you think? Why do you need to use that? Why are you clinging to that as the thing that can be your absolute certainty so that you can have something certain, something that is being, something that's enduring and indivisible? Um, and why are you insisting on that as a truth that then must be accepted by others, right? Must be accepted as a universal dogmatic truth from, in some sense, so as to what the second question is, I think I may have come up with what I think the second question is at other times, but there are a number of possibilities to what the second question could be that Nietzsche in some sense is the fact that he's letting us fill in the blank itself says something here, right? But that second question could involve like, why insist on the truth when your perspective, why insist on on reifying your conception of the cogito ergo sum into a dogmatic truth, the dogmatic meaning turning, uh, you know, the truth on its head and denying perspective when from your perspective, right? From the immediate certainty of your intuition and your experience, that's the closest thing to a truth that you have. So in some sense, you can't deny it from your perspective, it doesn't need to be universalized. It doesn't need to be proselytized if you're truly certain of it, right? But then that raises the question, are you actually truly certain of it? Or is there something in the back of your mind that says, I don't know if cogito ergo sum actually does demonstrate this, it does actually provide me with that bedrock, that bedrock of certainty that we arrive at through the methodological doubt. Uh, so perhaps the second question involves that. Like, <laughs> when are we going to stop following this road of the methodological doubt, imagining that what we're doing is this um, disinterested truth-seeking and realize that that pathway only leads down to the certain nothing, right? Um, what it's Again, I guess I'm sort of still asking a variation on the why insist on the truth question, but again, fill in the blank for yourself what that second question is of where you could then proceed with your own inquiry following along from these considerations. So with that being said, I think we're at a good stopping point for today. We're going to definitely finish up on the prejudices of philosophers in the next uh, episode. We might even have time to get into some of the next uh, sections on the free spirit which uh, is the next uh, division of the text, the second division. I think we'll probably get to at least the beginning of that. It'd be nice to like kind of conclude with some of those beginning sections of the free spirit next episode. So hopefully we'll, we'll get there. Um, this episode is about the pace that I'm going to aim for in future episodes, and we'll probably continue to hit sections that I've already gone over in past episodes. And that's what's kind of cool or interesting about doing this episode at the, the place in the podcast that we're doing it or at this point in the podcast, because I can then, there's a lot of sections like that one on Kant and the synthetic judgments a priori. If I had just given the explanation that I gave today, I'd probably be very dissatisfied with my ability to explain that passage, but because there's like a whole episode that concerns it, or at least a significant chunk of an episode that concerns that idea, 
you can go do another deep dive into that if you want. So it's like I have my references here of all the, my past work. And if you want to hear a talk about these specific issues, you can go and look at those. So, you know, we've talked a lot about the congenital defect of philosophers episode. And now the Descartes episode, the Schopenhauer episodes probably be very important um, as well. Um, even though we're not always talking about Schopenhauer, I feel like so many of the concepts in Nietzsche are a lot easier. Like the, if you have an understanding of what Schopenhauer was doing, so many things kind of open their doors to you with Nietzsche. So that's all for today. Uh, thank you, everybody. I will see you next week. Signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.